I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. So this morning's class is sponsored by an anonymous sponsor for someone who is going under undergoing surgery this morning. May the patient have a Rafua Shalema, complete recovery from her surgery, Be'ezrat Hashem. And thank you so much for sponsoring this class. And may the learning that we do this morning be a zechus for a Rafua Shalema. Good morning, everybody. We're going to start now. Let's see, did I? Yeah. Okay, so we're continuing with the next bracha in the Shemona Esrei. The bracha is about the righteous. It's simply called Sadiqim. It's about the righteous people of our nation. And um, it follows from our last prayer, which, as we remember, was added in 500 years after the Shemona Esri was composed. The, sh- the, the prayer that we spoke about last week was added in because of the difficult times that the Jews found themselves in, where Jewish people were leaving and creating new sects and new religions. And many Jews were leaving the uh, Torah path of Judaism and straying after other isms, other other religions, other ideologies that were not in keeping with our tradition. And of course, originally this prayer followed that prayer that basically when we get rid of the wicked, the evil, the bad that attempts to destroy our people together with our own Yetzirah we talked about was also an allusion to the the Ra that's within every human being, right? The Yetzer HaRa, the Yetzer HaTov, that when we ask Hashem to help us fight the battle within ourselves, then we're ready to be able to praise the Tzaddikim, the righteous people, because when evil is obliterated and when there's less, um, obviously, then the righteous can soar, as it says in the Talmud and Megillah 17b. So in this prayer, Al-Hatzadikim, the 13th prayer, we're asking Hashem to bestow divine blessing on all of the righteous of Kal Yisrael, on the righteous people of Kal Yisrael, of the Jewish people. Now, there's an also there's another idea too that tells us that once the wicked will be destroyed, which is the prayer that we say before this one, then what happens is the righteous will be scrutinized more closely. Because now it's not that they appear righteous compared to the wicked. If you recall, you know, the first Rashi and Parshas Noah, it talks about how Noah was a tzaddik in his generation. And the rabbis asked the question, well, was he a tzaddik or was he only a tzaddik in his generation? And Rashi, there's a famous Rashi there that says that in his generation where everybody was wicked, Noah was a tzaddik. Noah, you know, was an obvious tzaddik because he didn't do all of the terrible things that were going on at that time. But they point out that had he lived in the time of Avraham, where people were not quite as corrupt and rotten as they were in Noah's time, right, then he would have been a nothing. He would have been a nobody. So I think that this is the idea here, that once the wicked and the evil is obliterated in the world, there's an idea that the righteous are going to be scrutinized more closely because no longer will we be compared to the wicked. Therefore, we need our prayers to stand on our own merits, on our own accomplishments. 
Now this prayer on the righteous was said according to the Medrash when Yosef, who was present at his father's death, closes his father's eyes after he dies. There's a Jewish custom to close the eyes of somebody after they've left this world. And the uh, Malachim said this bracham, Baruch Hashem Hishan Miftach Latzadikim. Blessed are you, God, mainstay and, and assurance of the righteous in fulfillment of the promise that God gave that one day Yaakov would be reunited with his son, with Yosef. So, you know, the idea that um, Sadiqim, of course, have a tremendous amount of bitachon, a tremendous amount of trust in Hashem. And we're going to see that the word bitachon, the word trust, appears in this bracha three times. So bitachon, recognizing, number one, that everything that happens to us comes from Hashem. And that even the things that we don't necessarily like and don't feel good, we still trust that they're good for us. And of course, an even higher level of trust, the idea that when a person really believes that Hashem is responsible for everything, then we allow Hashem to do more for us. We allow him to be able to deliver, so to speak, because we put our trust only in him who is completely unlimited. Okay. So, um, you, God, are a support and trust for the righteous. Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, wrote in Mishlei, B'tzadik Yesod HaOlam. That a tzaddik, a righteous person, is the foundation of the world. The whole world stands on tzaddikim. The world continues because there are tzaddikim in this world. There are great people whose lives are completely devoted to doing the will of God. And whose merits outweigh their demerits. And that is how the world continues. There's even an idea that, um, you know, Hashem takes tzaddikim away from this world also in order to keep the world going. In other words, when, when a tzaddik goes to the next world, he has even more power because he's, um, he's stripped of his body, which limits us. And now as a soul, he has even more power to be able to pray for the Jewish people and sometimes because the world needs those people to go to the next world to keep us going, so to speak, to keep us, um, to keep the world running. So they keep the world running while they're here and they keep the world running while they're there in one way or another. So tzaddikim are a source of blessing, goodness, and life in this world. Now the question is asked, how does a human being cleave to Hashem? Right, something that we call devakus, devakus from the word davak, or I think in Hebrew, the word for glue is devak, right? So how does a human being cling to Hashem? How does something that's completely physical cling to something that is completely spiritual? So the answer that the Rambam gives and others is the way that we cleave to Hashem in this world is by cleaving to tzaddikim is by connecting ourselves to great people, to righteous people in this world. Specifically, we're told to connect ourselves to Talmidei Chachamim, 
those people who are completely immersed and well-versed in the Torah and in the behaviors that the Torah teaches. And when we connect ourselves to these people, we get a sense and a glimmer of what it means to be connected to Hashem. If you've ever visited a great study, there are people when they go to Israel, that's what's on their itinerary. They go from one tzaddik to another, right? To get brachas, to discuss with them whatever's going on in their lives. And, you know, the few times that I've had that experience, it's such, a, it's such an intense experience when you go to somebody who you've never seen before and you walk into the room and you have the opportunity to meet somebody who's a true tzaddik. The way I described it, it's like being with a Zaidi, you know, it's like being with your Zayda, who, you know, for some reason, you feel this tremendous love emanating from them, an unconditional type of love, the love that a grandparent has for a grandchild. And I used to say, if, if this is the kind of love I can feel from somebody who I just walked into the room and they don't know me and they've never really, you know, they don't know anything about me then call the Chomer, how much more so does it give us a taste of the intense love that Hashem himself must feel for each one of his creations? So for those of you who have ever had the experience, you get an, a, an idea of why cleaving to these great people, and we have so many of them in our, in our, in our, in our midst today, and of course throughout our history, um, really gives you a sense of the closeness that you could feel to Hashem, even in this world. So, you know, there's many, many stories in the Talmud and all the way up to today about tzaddikim and the way we, they act and how we can learn from them and what it means to be somebody who's completely other-focused, completely devoted to the Jewish people, who are like the eyes and the ears of the Jewish people. And, you know... Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Jewish people idolize, you know, uh, sports figures, they idolize movies and the people in the movies. But we have our own uh, people that, again, we're not supposed to idolize them in terms of idol worship, but that we try to teach our children, these are the people that you want to emulate. These are the people who you want to grow up to be like. You know, I had my grandson sleep over the other night. I think it was last night. Don't worry, he already had COVID. And, uh, and you know, he, he went into the tzaddik room. So I have one son. As you know, the, the Jewish kids collect tzaddik cards. Instead of baseball cards and hockey cards, they collect cards with different tzaddikim on them, different great rabbis of today, of yesteryear. And they trade them and they want to get all the sets and maybe it comes with bubble gum. I don't know. I'm not sure if it does or it doesn't. But the point is, is I have one son whose whole room is covered in them from the time he was a little kid. Of course, he doesn't live here anymore. But, you know, there's a certain ambiance in that room when you go in there. You know, if you feel your Rebbe's watching you, like my son once said when he was, you know, in grade one getting ready for school, in that room, you feel like a whole bunch of Rebbe's are watching you. You have to be really, really careful. But anyway, the point is, is that, you know, we have all these incredibly great people in our own tradition who give us so much to uh, strive for and yearn for in terms of trying to emulate their behaviors. 
This bracha, the tour notes, contains all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And this is in merit of the righteous scholars who immerse themselves in Torah learning. It's the 13th bracha. 13 is not an unlucky number in Judaism. There's no such thing as an unlucky number in Judaism. So we don't get all superstitious about the number 13. 13 is actually a very positive number. It's 13 are the midos of Hashem. 13 are the character traits of Hashem, which of course we all try to emulate and Sadiqim do a very good job of imitating and expressing their tzalem elokim, their image of God by uh, imitating and emulating uh, God's 13 midot. Now these 13 midot are called the 13 midot of Rachamim. Right? There's a description of them in the work Tomer Devora, written by Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, that describes the 13 midot of God, where we sing it in Yom Kippur. Everybody's familiar with it who goes to Shua, right? When we sing Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum, the Chanun, Erech, Apayim, the Rav Chesed, the Emet, Nosei Chesed, Lalafim. This is where we're describing the 13 midot of Hashem. Now, the number 13. Uh, is also equivalent to the word love, ahava in Hebrew, the numerical equivalent, and also to the word echad, which also equals 13. So the idea is, is when we arouse our love of Hashem, this arouses his love for us. And... When we arouse his love for us, he showers rachamim, he showers compassion on the world. And we're going to see in, the, in this prayer, we say, Yehemu rachamecha Hashem alokenu, that may your compassion be aroused, Hashem. May you move from your throne of judgment to your throne of compassion and judge the world uh, with compassion, with mercy. So who are these tzaddikim? What do we mean when we use the word tzaddikim and when we use the word chassidim? You know what? Let me look at the prayer and just read it for you so we see how we're talking about the words in this prayer so that when you daven, when you say these words, you'll know what you mean, okay? So the prayer goes like this. al tzaddikim ve'al chassidim ve'al ziknei amcha beis Yisrael. So al tzaddikim on the righteous... The Allah Hasidim and on the devout, the Al Zikne Amchabes Israel, and on the elders of your people, the family of Israel. Okay, let's talk about those three right now. Okay, so who are tzaddikim? What does it mean when we call somebody a tzaddik? So a tzaddik is somebody who we refers to someone who follows the letter of the law. They do what they're supposed to do, and they stay away from that which is prohibited. They're good soldiers in God's army, and their chief motivation, the rabbis teach us, is out of yira, honor, respect, and fear of God. Fear of God in a positive way, meaning when, they, you, when you have a certain amount of fear of your parents, it keeps you on the straight and narrow right? You're perhaps, we're going to see that being a tzaddik is actually a lower level than being a chassid. 
because the tzaddik is motivated on some level by uh, fear of punishment. I'm going to do the right thing because I don't want to get punished. I'm not going to put my hand in the flame of fire, right? Because I know it will hurt. So it keeps me from doing the things that I shouldn't do. And it motivates me to do the things that I should do. And this is a very high level. And this is a very difficult level to attain. But even more than the tzaddik, we call the next level chasidim. And we don't mean the guys who walk around with the fur hats in the summer. We're not talking about the chasidim. Although that's how they got their name. Because the idea of a chasid is somebody who goes beyond the letter of the law. Whether it's between themselves and God. Meaning, meaning they will engage in something that we call Hidur mitzvah. Hidur comes from the word beautiful. They'll beautify the mitzvah. In other words, you know, you could buy a talus like this, but they'll spend extra money to buy a more beautiful talus. You can get away with an esrog that is kosher and looks like this, but they'll spend extra money to get a, a, an esrog that has even extra beauty to it, extra uh, things about it that are on a higher level halakhically, according to Jewish law, even though they don't have to. So they go beyond the letter of the law because they're motivated primarily by ahava, by love of God, right? Now you can't get to love of God until you go through the lower level, which is yira. You have to first, you can't jump to the level of love before you go through the level of understanding that God is a judge, that there is right and wrong, there is reward and punishment, and I want to do good because God tells me this is what I should do, and I want to stay away from bad because God tells me that I should stay away from this. And that in itself keeps me in line. But the Hasid's relationship with God, with Hashem, is that I love Hashem so much that I wouldn't want to do anything that would in any way ruin our relationship. My motivation to do the mitzvot are not because I see them as, a, you know, in any way as a burden or as restrictive, but rather that this is my pathway to reaching as close as I can to Hashem. And God forbid would I want to do anything that would stare the relationship, as we say. You know, if you really love somebody, we can take that down to this world, right? When you really love somebody and hold by somebody and they're very important to you and you admire them and you want to be close to them, you, you, you watch yourself more carefully. You scrutinize yourself because you don't want to do anything that would lessen that love, that would lessen that attachment. So this is what's motivating the Hasidim who go beyond the letter of the law. In this prayer, we're also praying for the tzaddike umos ha'olam. We're praying for the righteous people of other nations. You know, so when people ask me all the time, you know, we're elitist, we think we're superior to other people, you know, the chosen people, etc. In this prayer, we are davening not only for the tzaddikim as we know them in our nation, but the tzaddikim in every nation. Of course, we know that at Yad Vashem, they have a special garden for the tzaddikim who help Jews, the, the righteous Gentiles, right? That help Jews at risk of their own lives 
and saved many, many Jews during the Holocaust. You know, back to my friend Linda from my childhood who told me that if I don't believe in, in uh, her God, I'm going to hell. You know, I, I would say to her, well, what about, uh, you know, all the righteous people that uh, do beautiful things? And she would say, well, I don't know, but, the, you know, according, if they don't get saved, that's it. They're done. They're finished. And I, I don't know how I knew this. Maybe my father taught me this from a young age. But I said, well, in our religion, we believe that the righteous of all nations go to heaven. You don't have to believe like I believe. And if you're a good person, right, in the absolute sense, then you go to heaven. And I said, I don't know. To me, that God makes much more sense than yours. And so, you know, the idea here is that we're also dovening for the righteous and pious of the nations of the world. There's a famous story. I, I don't know if I remember it exactly. I think it was, it's a true story about the shul that was built in Hamilton, Rabbi Green's shul. Maybe some of you know the story, but there's a story that um, there was a non-Jew who was living near, uh, up in some small northern town, and this non-Jew uh, lost his wife, and he had three young children. No, actually, she lost her husband. She lost her husband, and she had three young children. They were very poor, and the local grocery store was owned by a Jewish man. And after this man, after her husband's death, she came into the store and this Jewish store owner pulled her aside and said, I just want you to know, Mrs. Smith, that you can take whatever you want from my store. You can take whatever you need. Arlene's shaking her head. She's from Hamilton. So we have a witness here to the truth of this story. You know, uh, I'm not keeping a bill. And I just want you to know whatever you need is, is for you. Anyway, of course, no kindness goes unpaid the hebrew word for to give giving natan is a palindrome whether you read it forwards or backwards the idea is that you can never lose by giving right cast your bread upon the water and somehow everything returns to you so i don't know how many years later um rabbi green was building this shul and he needed money and he went to the bank manager in hamilton to ask him for a loan and when he asked him, it turned out that this bank manager was one of the children of this widowed woman from, I don't know how many years before, maybe 30, 40 years before. And he said, oh, Rabbi Green, it would be my, you know, sincerest pleasure to be able to give back to the Jewish people and have you build the synagogue. And he told the story about how because of this Jewish man, you know, they grew up never wanting that his mother had such incredible admiration and affection for the Jewish people, because as we know, a Jewish person represents all the Jewish people, whether for good or for bad. We have a big load to carry because each one of us are judged and people look at the entire Jewish people based on our behaviors. So the idea here is that we pray for the great people, the righteous and the pious of the nations of the world. Now, the next group, the Zikne Amcha Beit Yisrael, the elders of your people, the house of Israel, these are people who are even on a higher level, if we can imagine, of the Tzaddikim and the Hasidim. Uh, sorry, Hasidim. And who are these people? Who could possibly be higher than a Hasid? 
Well, unbelievably, it refers to those who accept responsibility of leadership in the Jewish community. Somebody who makes themselves into the shaliach tzibur or the gabai or a rabbinical judge. People who have to deal with the Jewish people on a daily basis. And we know how difficult that could be sometimes. These are the people that the, this prayer is telling us are those who go even higher than the tzaddikim and the chassidim because they are the ones who lead the Jewish people. And they are called zakein, zikne amcha. What does the word zakein, elder or old person, stand for? It stands for ze kana hachma. This person acquired hachma, right? Just by virtue of aging. Of course, we have tremendous respect for older people. There are people who stand up when an older person comes into the room. Just by virtue that they've lived years they have acquired wisdom. And I even once heard a vort, I think it was from Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, who said that we stand up for old people regardless, Jews, non-Jews, anybody who's acquired age. Because the idea is, is that the longer you've lived, the more times in your life you've seen things that you thought were going to turn out bad actually turn out good, Right? When we've only lived a short life, it's like we can't imagine that something negative could possibly be positive. But as years go by, the more years you have to see things unfold, the more you've seen this happen over and over again. And that in itself, Rav Chaim Shulevitz, is worthy of standing up for a person for. That they have this wisdom just gained of having been on this planet and being able to have Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? To be able to look back and say, oh, you know what? Thank God I didn't get that job. Thank God we didn't move there. Thank God that deal fell through. Whatever it is, an older person can say that. And it goes on now. It says that I'll play touch and on the remnant of their scholars. So who are these people? These are the outstanding Torah scholars who guide the entire Jewish world. Now, we know in the Catholic religion, you know, they have this idea that one kid, or at least in the, in the past, they used to have the idea that one kid is set aside to become the priest of the family, right? Well, in Judaism, we say every kid's supposed to be the priest, right? There's no such thing. And the rabbi, you know, he might be standing at the front of the shul, but just because, you know, he's no different than the rest of the people sitting in the congregation, Everybody's supposed to be striving to do the mitzvot, to stay away from the prohibitions, and to grow themselves spiritually, right? And you can have congregations where the congregants know way more than the rabbi. Unfortunately, in, in the shuls where the, the masses of people are very ignorant, so they look to their rabbi as knowing a lot. But in, you know, my father always used to say, the more orthodox shul, the more difficult it is for the rabbi, because they, he's got a contest with all these people who went to yeshiva who know a lot of torah and they say who is this guy he doesn't know anything right but you don't have that in, in the other movements because everybody says oh i only went to hebrew school and that was it you know so i guess he knows more than i do doesn't mean we still don't argue right we always argue but um anyway the idea here is that these are the torah scholars who the whole jewish people rest on because the people who sit and learn Torah, they're like the crown of the Jewish people. 
right? They say there's three crowns. There's the crown of priesthood, the kahuna to be a Kohen. There's a crown of Malachim kings that comes through David HaMelech that you can only be through your yichus, through your lineage. But there's one crown that is available to any, anybody. And that's the crown of Torah. And interestingly, in this last week's Parsha, where we're discussing the Mishkan, it talks about how everything that's written describing all the different parts of the tabernacle being built is described in second person. Except second person, um, I think, plural. Is that possible? Second person. Anyway, when it comes to, to describing the Aron, where the Torah was kept, where the Luchot were kept, the uh, grammar changes to third person, including everybody. And the reason given is because Torah is, is there for anyone, right? Every Jewish kid is supposed to learn Torah. Every Jewish man is supposed to learn Torah. As a matter of fact, we're told that when we get to the next world, one of the first questions that a man is asked specifically is, did you set aside time for the learning of Torah? So... Torah learning is open to everyone, but the ones who dedicate their lives to being the Torah scholars are the ones who guide the entire Jewish world. And Rashi says in this prayer, we're praying for them because there's an idea, I'm sure it comes up in a lot of different places, that Torah study actually weakens a person physically. There's a Gemara that says Torah scholars have stomach issues. There's all kinds of interesting things about people who sit and learn Torah, they become weakened and, and they become more susceptible to illness. So when you're kind of, and I'm not saying it's because they're denying what their bodies need, but when your focus in life is to become more spiritual, sometimes, so to speak, when God weakens the physical on us, when the physical grip of our bodies we're able to become more spiritual more easily. But it's just a known thing. And it's interesting that if you look at Megillah Ruth, I always found this fascinating. In Megillah Ruth, we have the story of Ruth, the Moabite, who wants to become Jewish. And of course, in that Megillah, we're taught the laws of conversion. That Naomi tries to push Ruth away three times and tell her, don't be Jewish. You don't have to come with me. Go back to your people. Go back to your nation. And it's only after the three times that she dissuades Ruth from joining the Jewish people and Ruth continues to persevere and says, no, I want to go with you. Your God is my God. Your people are my people, etc." There's an interesting word that is used to show that Ruth has just become converted, that she's just become Jewish. And it's the word mit ametzet. It's a, it means that she slowed down. And Rashi says there, it refers to physical weakening. That there's something to taking something very spiritual that actually weakens a person physically. You know, so you don't picture these yeshiva bacharim as being, you know, the, you know, the strong people of Israel. It physically, but of course, they are our strength in every way. They are our strength spiritually. They are the um, foundation from which we all benefit and on which we stand. So they are the true strength, even if their bodies are weak. Okay.
It's interesting. I think I've said this before, but Rav Cook, Zecher Tzadik Livracha, said about the people who founded Israel. They said, you know, it was the strong Jews, the non-religious Jews, the secular Jews who built the body of Israel. They drained the swamps. They died of malaria. They picked up guns and fought and, and etc. But he said that it wasn't the yeshiva bacharim so much, even today, right? The whole thing about yeshiva bacharim going into the army, because he said that those Jews, the, the secular Jews built the body of Israel, but the religious Jews are the ones who are building the soul of Israel. And that ultimately, a strong body without a soul is, 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 is eventually going to be destroyed. So you need the neshama, the soul that needs to be put into the body, into all the physical accomplishments that Israel has achieved. If it isn't run by Torah and by Judaism, then we haven't finished. We haven't finished it. And that's what the spiritual um, people of the Jewish people are in charge of. I just thought it was a beautiful idea that all were needed and all are needed to build a strong Jewish people, the physical and the spiritual. Okay, so we say the Algere Hatzedek Va'alenu, and also we want you to bless Hashem, the righteous converts, right? Who are these converts? So the Gerat Sedek, a convert, it says, is like a Torah scholar. Just as a convert feels like a stranger in the Gentile world, and their whole life they always felt like there was something, they just didn't belong. My husband, by the way, is the Manahel of the base team that does conversions in Toronto, meaning that anybody who wants to convert, he's the first address. And we're talking about people who are not converting for marriage, although that comes up too. But really singular individuals who have these incredible stories, who say they just never felt comfortable in church, or they always felt some kind of inner yearning. Uh, and it's just incredible, some of the stories. I mean, I know he has one young girl, I think she's 20 now, who grew up in some out-of-town, Yehuppetsville, northern Canadian place. And she's been keeping stuff since she was 12 and 13 on her own in her non-Jewish home just based on the book she's been reading. And now at 20, I think she's in Toronto and she called my husband and said she wants to, you know, become part of the Jewish community and finish the process. My husband has a lot of incredible stories of these people. Now, unfortunately, we also have, um, anyways, but just the same way the convert feels like a stranger in the Gentile world, I thought this was interesting. It says that they're like a Torah scholar because the Torah scholar feels like a stranger in the mundane physical world, right? They're busy with the lofty learning of Torah for its own sake. And it's hard for them to feel completely comfortable in the physical material world around them. Um, there was a famous convert in Israel, actually. He lived in our neighborhood. People used to confuse him with my husband because his name was Usher Wade. I think he wrote a book about his story. And my husband's name was Usher Vale. So they used to confuse them. But Usher uh, Wade, when he tells his story, his English name was Wallace. And Wallace means stranger in, in uh, whatever, where the, wherever that language comes from. He said he never felt, and he was studying to become a priest. He was studying to become a minister. 
And I know his story is all about all the different questions he had, and they kept shutting him up and telling him, you know, you can't ask these kind of questions if you want to move up in the church. You just can't keep asking these, these questions. And basically, he found his way to Judaism, and he ended up marrying a woman also, I think she was a German, whose father was a minister, who had a similar story about her own discomfort and her own religion. And they live in Israel, and if you saw them and their kids, at least we lived in their neighborhood, when their kids all had long uh, peyot, you know, were, looked Hasidic, and their parents were both from ministers, uh, you know, they were bringing some new gene pools into the, the genetic pool for the, of the Jews, which we desperately need. But there's an idea, too, that when the Jews left Egypt, a whole bunch of Egyptians followed us out and converted right? If you've ever heard the, uh, the concept of the Erev Rav, in English, they, 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 um, they translate that as the mixed multitude. But what it means is the people who saw all the wonders that happened, all of the plagues, they saw the hand of God, so to speak, the, the way the Jews left Egypt and that no slave had ever left Egypt before. And they said, we want to be part of you. However, these are the same Jews that incited us to do the sin of the golden calf. When Moshe was late coming down from the mountain, they're the ones who said, come on, come on, we need uh, an idol. We need a, a representative of God. We need a new leader. And they're the ones who sort of uh, promoted the idea and got the rest of the Jews on board, who, by the way, we know that the Jews were idol worshipers themselves when they were slaves in Egypt. So it wasn't so far from them. But the Erev Rav, uh, traditionally, we say they're always, the Vilna Gaon says that all the heretics and all the wicked Jews descend from this group of people called the Erev Rav. So whenever we have a Jew who's in a position of power, who works against us, I recently heard of, I think, Dennis Prager, but I think it was an old video, but he was talking about somebody who was the head of the Jewish department of some university like Oxford who was so dedicating his life to anti-Israel and propaganda against the Jews in the most vicious way. So whenever we have Jews like this, it's like a Yiddish expression or a very Jewish expression to say they're part of the Erevra. They're part of this group that followed us out for their own reasons, but they never really became a part of us and they work against us, right? And there's actually, the Vilna Gaon says there will be many of these types of Jews preceding the Mashiach who will cause harm to the righteous, Jews who protest against Israel, Jews who are for the BDS movement. I don't want to get so political, but even my husband told me the other day that Biden, who's now the president of the United States, is working very hard to undo any kind of progress, any of the good strides that Trump made in terms of putting Iran in its place, in terms of, you know, raising up the Jewish nation and the Jewish people of Israel. And unfortunately, Biden and many, many of his followers who are all from the, the Jewish camp are going back to the Obama days and rebuilding everything that went against the good of the Jewish people. So these are people we call the heir of Rav. However, when we're talking about the righteous converts, oh, and by the way, it's interesting that at the end of the Megillah that we're going to be reading this week, 
It also says at the very end of the Megillah story um, that many people became Jews because the fear of the Jewish people were upon them. Right? So after the uh, Haman's decree is overturned and the Jewish people are able to fight back and we're able to beat and slaughter all of our enemies who were going to kill us and we're given the go-ahead to be able to fight back in a war, it says that many non-Jews wanted to become Jewish for fear because of fear of the Jewish people. So one rabbi, the Raalbuk, says they merely pretended to be Jewish. They never actually really were Jewish. And the Gra, the Vilna Gaon, says they tried to convert, but their conversion was not out of a sincere desire. Rather, it was completely predicated on fear. And since it was not accepted, they pretended to be Jewish, but they really weren't. I'll tell you one more interesting story about a Ger Tzedek. I mean, there's uh, so many. My husband could write a book on it. But there's an idea. Where do these righteous Gentiles come from? Because, of course, they come from all different nations in the world. My husband has an Iranian girl right now. I walked by his computer, this gorgeous Iranian girl who's in U of T Law School. Okay? And she's got her, her little mother sitting behind her with a babushka on her head, whatever. And she wants to be a Jew. And she says, I'm probably... I don't know if there's anybody else like me, you know, and she and her mother's supportive. And anyway, I'll just tell you quickly, this, the, the, the idea is, is that when God offered the Torah to all of mankind, to the entire human uh, world at Mount Sinai, because originally God's plan was not for there to be Jews, but that all the nations of the world will worship one God and keep the Torah. But again, his plan, you know, it, it didn't work. So that's why God went with Abraham and his children. He said, okay, it's not going to be the whole world, but it'll be this group of people, this nation. But at Mount Sinai, God basically opened it up again because we're told that the whole world knew that the Torah was being given, right? There wasn't a bird that chirped. There wasn't a cow that mooed. Everything was quiet. The world had this awesome quietness which maybe will be the same quiet that will come when we hear the shofar blow with Mashiach. And all the nations of the world were offered the Torah once again, as if we were back at the very beginning of the world, back in creation, back in the garden again. And what happened is, you know, as the Medrash says, the different nations said, well, what's in that Torah? What's in your Torah? And each nation decided we don't want it for different reasons, right? They, I don't know if it's a joke or it's true. The French said, what's in it? They said, no adultery. They said, ah, forget it. We don't want it. And the Arabs said, what's in it? And they said, no killing, no murder. They said, ah, forget it. We don't want it, right? And the Jews said, how much does it cost? And God said, uh, you know, whatever. And he said, they said, oh, wow, that's a good price. We'll take two, right? Anyway, the point is, is that... Um, even if all the nations of the world said, now nah, we don't want it. What the Midrash says is there must have been some souls that were part of those other nations that said, I want it. I want it. But of course, that singular voice was drowned out by the chorus of the naysayers, of the ones who said no. And those neshamas that had that experience at the time of Mount Sinai were, that said, I want it. Their neshamas maybe had to go through many generations until they were able to express who they really want, what they really wanted. And those 
the Chafetz Chaim explains, those are the souls of the righteous converts that were at Mount Sinai. Those were those among the nations who wished to join us, but their voices were drowned out. And these are the people who join us throughout the ages. I'll just tell you quickly another story. My husband had this guy from India come to him a few years ago. Um, you know, and he came and he said he wants to be Jewish, this and that. And they started the process. You know, the first thing my husband says is, well, you know, you can't be Jewish until you move to a Jewish community. You've got to join a shul. You've got to see what a, you know, traditional Orthodox community is like. You can't become Jewish in Whitby. You can't become Jewish in Peterborough, whatever. You have to become part of a, a, a traditional Jewish. And so that's the first test, right? Right away, you know, if somebody puts up their house for sale the next day, that they really mean it. Or they move from a place where they, you know, have a job and everything. But this is what's driving them. That's the first thing they have to do. Anyway, this Indian guy had come to him and he was, you know, beginning, I think, to go to a shul and beginning to be part of something. And then all of a sudden he told it, my husband, you know what, I, I have to go back to India. My parents want me to come back and I have to go back and visit them. Meanwhile, he goes back to India. He calls my husband. And he says, um, my parents made a shit up for me. Right. In the Indian culture. And, and I have I, I, I can't say no. They, they, they want me to marry this girl, you know. And in my culture, if I would say no, she would probably never get married. She would be considered damaged goods, right? That's the, the way society is there. And she, he said, so I have to marry her. And my husband said, well, you know, obviously you understand whatever his name was, uh, that if you marry her, I mean, you know, we're not, we can't go ahead with this. We can't go ahead with your conversion. Anyway, he says, I know, I know, I understand. Anyway, didn't hear from him for two years, okay? Two years later, he calls him, and I think they've moved back to Toronto, and they have two children. And one kid's name is Rifka Leah, and the other one's kid's name is Sarah Leah. And my husband first tells them, he says, well, you can't name them both the same middle name. So they didn't know that, right? So he said, no, you can't. And of course, these kids weren't Jewish, right? Nobody's Jewish yet. And he says, you know, and he's here and this and that. And then another six months go by and he says, you know, my wife is interested in converting now. My wife, my wife would like to be Jewish too. Anyway, so you can imagine they pick up the, the story goes on and the two of them start learning. And anyway, I was at their wedding. I was lucky enough to be at their wedding. Rabbi Michalowicz up in Thornhill has a lot of Indian Jews in his community. So that's where they felt they would be the most uh, comfortable. And they did this at wedding and he, he actually got up and told his story, which was just incredible. I mean, it started in childhood, even as an 11 year old, and he had a very stormy life and difficult life. But anyway, this, just this, this whole call towards Judaism that kept surfacing all through his life, even though he'd never met a Jew or even known about Jews, um, Anyway, so yeah, so Baruch Hashem, they live in Toronto today. They probably have a few more kids. They know not to name them all Leah, which is good. And uh, anyway, so the, the, this is, these, these are the people that uh, really are the ones whose souls we could say were at Mount Sinai. And uh, there's a famous uh, count named Count Val Valentin Potoki 
who in, in Hebrew, his name became Avraham ben Avraham. I remember reading this story when I was uh, a long time ago, and I, I don't even know the details, but it's just one of those books that you know was like really grabbed you. So it's a story about this Polish nobleman who belonged to this incredibly aristocratic Polish family in the 1700s. And he converted to Judaism. And he was buried at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. He was burned at the stake. Sorry, burned at the stake on May 23rd, 1749 in, in the city of Vilna. And the famous rabbi, the Vilna Gaon, was alive at that time. And he's the one that the source comes from. So those are the people we're talking about when we say, Algere Hatzedek, and on the righteous converts. The righteous converts. And right there we say, the Aleinim. And, and upon us, because it reminds us that we also have to strive to be among the righteous. You know, I've, I've had very few times where I've been uh, with converts who are going into the mikvah. Um, oh, your mom's from Vilna. Nice. A litvish a Jew. Anyway, um, so we, um, you know, I've been, I've been there. I've been uh, merited to, to be there when, let's say, a woman is dunking in the mikvah and becoming a Jew. And, uh, you know, nobody else is going or whatever. My husband will say, you want to come? And it's just so amazing because one of the, it's sort of funny, it's funny and it's a, it's, um, it's a good lesson, you know, just before they're about to dunk, the rabbis were standing in the, another room, so of course they can't see her, but they're asking, you know, are you going to keep kosher? And they're like, you know, they're, they're already in the water, right, waiting to, uh, yes, yes, well, you, you know the laws of kosher, you can't eat this, and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you know, they're saying yes, yes, and are you going to dress modestly, you know how a Jewish woman dresses, are you going to, yes, yes, anyway, you know, while, while they're answering and saying yes, you know, of course, I'm standing there thinking, hmm, I don't know, will I, won't I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like going over to get in my, gee whiz, you know, this is tough, I don't know, will I, you know, anyway, whatever, it's just funny, because we don't get asked those questions, right, we're just born Jewish, right, so we figure I'm born Jewish, I don't have to do these things, yeah, I don't have to do these things, I'm in the club no matter what, but when you're standing there seeing somebody literally becoming a Jew, meaning that one, the Shama is leaving them. The soul that they had as a non-Jew is leaving them. And literally a new Neshama is coming into them. They're choosing a new name, right? They're totally divorcing themselves from the whole connection, past and future. And it's so profound. And yet we who are born into it, we don't realize the gravity of the fact that these things are all incumbent upon us too and just because we're born a jew doesn't mean that we are as they say putter we're uh exempt so it would be a reminder to me that the same way they're accepting it we have forum which is coming up which is a time that we're called that's called the re-acceptance of the torah and of course in the shema prayer we use the word hayom today because when we read that prayer, we're supposed to feel as if every day we're re-accepting our commitment to the Torah and all that it entails. So, you know, being privy to watching a, a, a convert uh, 
go in the mikvah and, 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 you know, there's even a story about somebody said, you know what, um, when they asked about the kosher that said, and it's a true story about a guy who said, you know, I just remembered I have a whole bunch of trefa meat in the freezer. You know what? I want to go home and eat that and then I'll come back. You know, and then I'll do it. So, so of course they said, you're finished. That's it. You're out of here. Right. But it was a true story, you know, but you can imagine a Jew saying something like that. Right. I mean, whatever, just like, you know, well, let me do a few more things and then I'll, you know, and then I'll go along with it. Let me find some kind of, you know, way of, okay. All right. Enough about that. Okay. So it also says, um, Okay, the next part says, May your compassion be aroused, Hashem our God. So there are um, texts in the Siddur where we add the word na, meaning please, please Hashem, please arouse your compassion on us. And the idea of this word na, nun aleph, is we're saying to Hashem, even if we don't deserve it, Right? Even if we don't deserve it, have mercy on us. And that's why the word not, please, is used. But we're also saying in the in the text where the not is not there, which are most Ashkenazi texts, we're saying just the fact that we align ourselves with these righteous people, that that should be enough to be a merit for us. Even if we ourselves aren't righteous, but we yearn to be and we see these people as part of the people that we aspire to be like, that that in itself should be a merit for us. And that takes us back to the beginning of the Shemona Esrei. Anyway, oh my goodness, it's already time to say goodbye. Okay, I better go on. Okay. The same Sachar Tov And give us a goodly reward. Give a good reward to all those who trust in your name and truth. Okay, just another idea that um, the idea of God, of asking God to, to have mercy upon us. There's a saying in Mishle in Proverbs that says, a man is judged according to who he praises. Sorry, yeah. No, a man is judged according to how he is praised, how he is praised. But the rabbis read on that, don't read how he is praised, but who he praises. Because you know a person, not by how he's praised, but by who he praises, who he looks up to. The blessing, this whole blessing, by the way, contains 42 words without the word please, na. And 42 is the same numerology as the word bum that we say in the Shema, the Dibarta bum, and you shall speak in them. And the word bum is referring in the words of the Torah and the, the bet of that word um, represents the first word of the Torah, Bereshit, the bet of Bereshit. And the mem represents the first word of the oral Torah, which is mea masai. And that word is just a small little word, but it's connoting, you know, put our lot together with those people who are versed in the entire Torah, the written Torah, beginning with Bereshi, and the oral Torah, beginning with Mea Masai, okay? And give a good reward to all those who trust in your name and truth. So what does this mean? 
So first of all, the word trust, just quickly, bitachon, what is bitachon? Bitachon is emuna put into action. Emuna is believing in God. But bitachon is taking that belief and moving it from the theoretical and the abstract to the practical, meaning in my everyday life, when things happen, do I see it as random? Do I see it as the result of my efforts? Do I see my success and failure being dependent on other things? Or do I recognize that everything comes from Hashem, the good, the bad, the small, the big, the people in my life that annoy me, the people in my life that give me pleasure. That's what bitachon is in a nutshell. But the Ramban asks, wait a second. Why does it say here, give goodly reward? Don't we say that uh, in the Mishnah, don't be like servants who serve for the sake of a reward? Is that why we, we, we follow Hashem? Is that why we do the mitzvahs? Because we want reward? Is it like, you know, um, you know, the church taught that to be oppressed and to be uh, uh, lowly in this world, it's okay because the meek will inherit the next world, right? And, you know, Karl Marx said religion is the opiate of the masses. Why? Because the, the whole Christian derech, the whole Christian promise was that, okay, you know, life is really bad in this world, but don't worry. You're going to be, you're going to have it great in the next world. And this way, the church was able to become very rich and keep the people down, right? Now, obviously, this is a whole cheer in itself, but Judaism has a very different idea about this world and the next world. But still, we're asking the question, what does it mean, give them goodly reward? What kind of rewards are we asking for? So the idea is we're not asking for material rewards. We're asking for spiritual rewards. Or we're asking for the material in order to be able to pursue the spiritual, right? Because if ain't kemach, ain't Torah, if you don't have what to eat, you can't sit and learn Torah. So whatever I want, it's purely for me to be able to reach my future goals. Okay. The sim chalkenu imahem le'olam, put our lot with them forever. Velo nevosh ki tachnu, and we'll never feel ashamed. Because we trust in you. Again, the word trust shows up. I think, yeah. And then again, and then we have it again. So this whole idea of trusting in Hashem is a big part of being a tzaddik. Okay. Um, in every generation, there's 36 righteous people that are in every generation, right? We have this idea of the 36 hidden tzaddikim. And the idea of a goodly reward, it says, Saint Sachar Tov is really referring to trust and confidence in God. Because the more you have that, the more, that's the true reward. The true reward is the serenity and the um, trust that you have, which allows you to be able to accomplish in this world. Put our lot with them forever. It's a mitzvah to keep the com company with a Torah scholar and their students and learn from their ways. And that's, again, how we cling to Hashem. And we will not feel ashamed for we trust in you. We won't feel ashamed for trusting in other things. 
and not in trusting, not for trusting in you. And again, it goes back to the idea of Rav Nachman of Breslov says, a person who depends on others will never pray properly. And Sadiqim were so, you know, like we talked about the judges in our last fila, in our, in our request, that they were so careful not to take a bribe. They were like feeling things out so that they shouldn't be in any way tainted by their own bias. So too, their stories of Tzadikim. There were two stories I read. I, I can't tell you. I mean, I think they're in here, but we don't have time. But basically, they needed something badly. And let's say somebody gave them a check or somebody gave them money and said, here, this will take care of it. And they found that as soon as they had the money in their pocket or something, that their prayer all of a sudden became different. And they were so in touch with the fact that they were no longer relying on Hashem in the same way that they were before this, this check was in their pocket, that they literally ripped it up. There's two stories like that in the Talmud and threw it away because they said, it's not worth my having put my trust now in something other than God, right? So this is the level to which a tzaddik, somebody who's striving, will purify their intentions and themselves. I'll just tell you one last story that I just love. I'm sure many of you have heard it, um, or you've heard of the great Rav Moshe Feinstein, who I believe died in the 1980s. He lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was considered to be the greatest Torah scholar of our generation. He was, you know, we, we talk about Torah scholars being like a mountain a pyramid, and there's always the great ones who sit at the top. And just like Moshe in the Torah, whenever a difficulty or a question that would elude all of the scholars all the way up the pyramid, the hardest questions and the most difficult questions always arrive to the one who is sitting at the top of the pyramid, you know, are great people. And Rav Moshe Feinstein was such a person. Everybody agreed, the Hasidim, the Lubavitch, this, that. They all would come to him with the most difficult questions. But the point that I want to give with this story is not only are our tzaddikim and our leaders geniuses of the mind, to the point, by the way, that I want to say something about Rabbi Henkin, who also lived not so many generations ago, maybe only one, to show you the, the genius of the great people. They could take a pin in the Talmud and put it on top of a word on one page of the Talmud. And Rabbi Hankin could tell you every single word that was under that pin all the way to the last page of the Talmud. So we're talking about a photographic memory, an encyclopedic mind. But again, Jews don't reach the top of the pyramid merely because of their intellectual prowess, their midot, their love of the Jewish people, their love of Hashem, their impeccable midot, character traits and development have to be in, in line and as high as their intellectual prowess. So just a little story about Rav Moshe Feinstein, and there are many like this, Zecher Tzadik Nivracha. 
There's a story in the book about him that his Talmidim, his students, he taught in the yeshiva, were once accompanying him out, out of the yeshiva doors and putting him into a car that had his driver in it and, you know, saying goodbye to him. Anyway, they're putting the rabbi in the car, and he was an older man at this time. And one of the boys closes the door, and, um, and you know, the car drives off. Meanwhile, after the car drives off and turns the corner, Rav Moshe Feinstein says to the driver, could you please pull over and stop? And the driver pulls over, and Rav Moshe opens up the door of the back seat of the car because his finger had been stuck in the door from the time the student had closed the door on it. But the amount of self-mastery and self-control that Rav Moshe showed was simply the result of God forbid not wanting to embarrass that student who put him into the car with kavod respect. Because the Gemara tells us that Embarrassing somebody is akin to murder. Now, we might say it and we might know it intellectually, but our great people live these ideas. They live them. Their whole focus is other focused. They are so trained that all of their emotions and all of their actions are completely framed by the Torah that they, 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 they develop this kind of self-mastery. Again, just one story, but there are so many stories like this about our great people. I'll just I'll tell you one more because we can never hear enough of them. But last night when I read my grandson a story um, for bed, I read him this one, and I think it's another indication. I'll just paraphrase it. But basically, it's about Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who was the Brisker Rav, who was also known for his genius. We still have today, we call it the Brisker way of learning, right? That there was a whole introduction of a way of learning Gemara that's based on the Brisker pill pool of learning. So here was this great rabbi. He was traveling home with his wagon driver, and they were caught in this horrible snowstorm, and they came to an end. And they pulled up at this inn in the middle of the night and they banged on the door. And the innkeeper was, you know, who's bothering me? He wasn't interested in getting out of his warm bed, etc. But he finally comes down and he, he can't believe it. And he says, what are you doing here? And they said, listen, we're cold. It's freezing. We can't go any further. Please just let us in. Please just let us stay here until things calm down. So he finally, you know, allows them in. He pushes them into this tiny little, very cold room. And he says, here, you can stay here. So um, they go in and they go to bed. Meanwhile, a few, uh, a little while later, there's all these loud noises. And this rabbi, Aaron Koydenover and his Hasidim come to the inn also, stop at the inn. Now, he was a famous Hasidic Rebbe. And the innkeeper jumped out of bed and looked out his window. There were 20 people outside, but he rushed to open the door for them. Come in, come in. I have room for all of you. He served them cake. He brought them to a large table. He brought them. Everyone was warm and refreshed. Anyway, everybody's there. And all of a sudden, this Rebbe, this Hasidic Rebbe notices in this other room, the Brisker Rav. 
right? He knew who he was. And he says, oy vey, oy vey, brisker rub. What, what are you doing in this cold room? Come with me, come. And he brought Rav Yosheber and Yankel into the large room with all the Hasidim. And he says to us, Hasidim, do you see who's here with us? The Gadol Hador, the leader of the generation, Rabbi Ber Soloveitchik. Then he turns to the innkeeper and he says, I can't believe what you did. How could you put such a great tzaddik in that small, cold room? You have to ask him to forgive you. So the innkeeper, you can imagine, is horrified. And he says to Rav Dov Ber Soloveitchik, he says, I'm so sorry. I didn't know who you were. And Rav Dov Ber looks the innkeeper straight in the eye and he says, I cannot forgive you. Anyway, the innkeeper is mortified and he asks again for forgiveness, but the Rebbe, the rabbi, the brisker rab doesn't forgive him. And this uh, Hasidic Rebbe again says, you know, the way you treated the rabbi and his driver was very wrong. You have to keep asking him until he forgives you. So the innkeeper begs and pleads for forgiveness, but again, Rav Yoshiver didn't answer. And they couldn't understand why he didn't want to forgive the innkeeper. Finally, Rav Yosheber, in a very low voice, says to the innkeeper, my dear friend, he said, of course I will forgive you. But first, I want you to understand what you did wrong. You think that you should be nice only to people like the Koydenerver Rebbe and the Brisker Rav? That is wrong. You must be kind to everyone, especially on a cold, snowy night. I hope that you will change your ways. And also, the next time you come to Brisk, I would like you to be my guest. So not only did he give him the muster that he needed, but he wanted to make sure that he had no taint of anger or upset with him. Again, the self-mastery. And not only does he invite him to be his guest in Brisk, but it says the innkeeper was so happy the rabbi had forgiven him. And a few weeks later, he was the guest at Rav Yosheber's home. And the Rav treated the innkeeper with great respect and gave him everything he needs. So we have an expression that you're supposed to greet every person with a smile. You're supposed to greet every person warmly. And this was the way Rav Ber Soloveitchik, who was a genius, a gaon, the leader of the generation, gave over the Jewish mentality, the Jewish way of treating other people to the simple innkeeper. And then of course, hosted him in his own home and treated him as if he was the most royal and important guest I'm sure that he ever had. So there's much that we have to learn from the tzaddikim. We ask in this prayer that Hashem, you should look upon us as part of them, that we yearn to be like them, even if we are not there yet, and that the merits that they have uh, should be our merits and that they should be protected because the Jewish people stand on their shoulders the Jewish people stand, um, that the world exists because of great people and the people who sit and learn Torah and give up their material lives um, for the sake of a more spiritual existence, which makes them feel like strangers in this world. But again, we're all strangers in this world, ultimately. We're all just passing through. So we want to make sure that we give priority to our spiritual side and nourish it in the way that we need to, because that is really what goes on and on forever and ever. Thank you for staying on with me a whole nother 15 minutes. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful week. By the way, I'm giving a class.